uh, I now have to make a thing that's probably going to live with me forever. Um, <laughs> Disclaimer, uh, this is Yehuda's opinion and only Yehuda's opinion. So if you don't I, follow I, it, you are stupid. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the JavaScript Jabber podcast. This is episode two, and this week on our panel, we have Yehuda Katz. Hello. Great to be here again. We also have Jameson Dance. Howdy. Nice to be here, too. We also have AJ O'Neill. It's Wednesday, and we're so excited. <laughs> and I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about how to do web apps right or something like that. Yeah, it um, seems hard. Yeah, it is hard. I'll leave it to you guys. Throw up some PHP, right? <laughs> seems good. Absolutely. Well, the language of champions. <laughs> well, you kind of bring up a good point there is that uh, everybody kind of has their own way of wanting to do this. I mean, some people, they just kind of throw a layout together and then they, you know, do a big JavaScript front end. Um, other people tend to use something like Ruby on Rails or PHP or something to uh, build an API that then the JavaScript front end can use. And then there are other people that just do it all with like page refreshes and hairy Ajax calls. Yeah, I believe I believe Thirty Seven Signals does the Ajax calls and page refreshes based yeah. on what DHH has said publicly before. So. Yep. So, I, I think I think there are a lot of different ways, like you know, like I pointed out to do it. But but what what is your preference? What or what are you guys' preference? Um, my preference is to actually build the API first. Um, it seems like a lot of sites have the API as an afterthought. So if you're going to build it anyway, why not build the API and then use your API in your app so your API, API is tested because you're the one using it as well. Yeah, right. I, think, I think as more people are building uh, other, other front-ends, so if you're building an iOS or an Android app, you're going to need an API anyway. And I think uh, treating your web front-end as the equivalent of an Android or iPhone app. I, that's a very hand-wavy thing to say, but if you can do something like that, that's a, that's a big win, I think, along the lines of what you just said. Right. So when we're talking about APIs, are we talking about something like a JSON API, since this is a JavaScript show, or an XML API, or uh, does it matter? JSON. Not an XML API. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so I'm, I'm very, obviously, I'm, I'm not going to be controversial by saying I prefer JSON APIs, but um, part of the reason why I prefer a JSON API is that I, I actually like to have my front end and my back end not, I, okay, so let me back up. So a lot of people who build APIs do like handcrafted APIs where everything that they build is like a, uh, every, every resource that they build, they're like, okay, what things should I expose and like, what should I name everything and where should I cache my associations and what should happen if there's errors. And I like to build applications where the answer to all those questions for every resource is always the same. Um, so I built uh, Serializer Gem with Jose Valim that enforces that. But basically, if, if that's the case, if everything's the same, if, you're, if the answer for associations is alongside and the answer for errors, if there's an errors hash, um, and your front end is, uh, is JavaScript, it's really nice to be able to basically just say, um, the way I handle taking a, a response and converting it into an object that I want to use on the client side is basically just taking that data hash and making it available to the, the model on the client side. And it, again, if, that's, if it's very consistent, if your job, JSON API is always the same, if, if you ask for posts, you get back a hash that contains a post key, for instance, then it's very easy to do that. 
the thing that I like about JSON is, well, first I'd like to say I think that JSON is a misnomer because it's not a JavaScript object notation, it's a generic object notation. Uh, Python has it, Ruby has it, uh, plenty of other languages implemented it either on accident because it just made sense or um, on purpose to comply with the JSON standard. But the idea that you're transmitting objects, you know, JSON, you can specify what's an object or a map, and you can specify what's an array, um, whereas you can't really do that in XML without some sort of external document and schema and et cetera. JSON, just really simple. It is what it is. Right. That, that's definitely something that I like about it, too, where... Um I mean, sometimes you get big blobs of JSON that are hard to read, but I mean, with a little bit of work, or if it's a relatively small object, it's really easy to see what's going on. Whereas with some of the other um, protocols out there, you know, you you can't you can't always follow what's there and what's provided because it's either not consistent, and that's the issue that I have with XML is that you know you you have the tags, but then you can have attributes on the tags, or you can have sub tags, and and neither of those really, you know. You, you can't just pick up what's there where um, you can with the JSON. Um, and uh, the other thing is, is it's just, it's really concise. I mean, you have the key and the value and very little uh, syntax around it to, you know, to describe what's going on there. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of noise at all. Um, I mean, I don't think there are very many people using binary protocols for their APIs besides like the huge places like Google and stuff. But I think being human readable is is a huge plus for it. That's there's a lot to be said for being able to look at it. Yeah, yeah so I don't decoded or whatever. I actually don't care about human readable so much, but I do care that it is. So basically, if you get a huge array of objects back, which is like pretty common, like I would like to search all the customers, so I'll give me customers back. It's actually important that it be efficient for browsers that are in wide use to actually get access to that information and not have to do a ton of processing to get it. So I think ultimately probably binary protocols will be good in new browsers, but and maybe then it will be worth revisiting some like BSON or something like that. Uh, but until then, basically the fact that you get back to JSON and then it's just a hash that you have access to in your JavaScript code is helpful. Yeah, the, the other nice thing about that is that regardless of whether you're using JavaScript or Ruby or anything else, um, not only do they have translation protocols or, or drivers or whatever for the JSON that'll translate it into some um, fundamental data type, but most languages have a data type that is a key value, hash, dictionary, object, what, what have you. And so it, it translates very nicely to most languages they're going to use on the front end or the back end. Yeah. Um. So we're talking about the right way to build web applications, and Yehuda kind of has a horse in the game, right? So maybe we should talk about... A horse or two uh, in like, the game. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, two horses. <laughs> but, but should we talk about like the whole front-end framework stuff, like Ember.js and related yeah, things? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So I, actually, I first want to uh, say a bit about Rails, which is, I think, I think it's, it's like hipster popular right now to say, well... I looked at Rails back in the day, and I, most of my app was like a bunch of views. These days, I just make JSON, and I think it will be cool. I'll just use like Node, and I'll bunch, spit out a bunch of JSON, and like Rails seems too heavy. And as a person who has both worked on a lot of Rails apps and worked on Rails, I, I just I want to put out there that I do not agree with this position. Um, I think that both two big issues, security and um, HTTP semantics. Mean that even for just doing JSON, as long as your app is mostly request response style app, which is still mostly the case, 
uh, having something that, that I know is invulnerable to timing attacks, does the right thing with cookies if we're using those. Um, there's a big list I, I could make. I've occasionally given talks where I give the big list. Um, I'm not worried that there are like common web attacks that I'm, that I'm vulnerable to, and I also know that HTTP does the right thing, and I don't have to like install middlewares to get common functionality. I use Rails for everything, basically. All backends of all apps that I build. That said, I totally agree that a Rails app is becoming more and more like a dumb terminal kind of, or sorry, a dumb server kind of thing where, uh, like I said earlier, where you're essentially creating a bunch of, Java, of JSON objects that are extremely consistent. But I think the world in which you can, you don't have to write authentication logic or the world in which you don't have to do custom queries and things like that is not here yet. So um, I like to use Rails. So that's, that's one. Um, and then in terms of front end, I believe strongly uh, now in some kind of data binding solution. Um, people who have used data binding solutions for other purposes really like it. So there are a few options out there. I think Ember, which is what I work on, is the most robust data binding option. And I, I would say that, that the fact that that is a feature of Ember is one of the reasons that I advocate it. So I think do, you want to explain, do you want to explain what data binding is maybe to some people that don't know? Sure. So um, I'll, uh, the easiest way to explain it is in terms of something like Backbone. So uh, obviously the, the simple Hello World JavaScript app doesn't use anything. It's like everything is in the view. And if you want to like, uh, you're like, how many checkboxes are checked off? You go get, collect all the checkboxes and count them, and, and then you know how many there are. So that, that we call truth in DOM, right? The truth about what is happening is in the DOM. Your data uh, but, is the DOM, basically. Yes, and that, I think that works well. That, that's like how a lot of people build apps still today. Um, but that type of application, everybody who builds anything that's not like extremely simple and mostly retrieving HTML snippets from the server, hits a point where you're like, I can't reason about this well. The same data is represented in multiple places in the DOM. Which one is canonical? If I change it here, how do I make sure I change it everywhere? Right? So people immediately hit this issue where they, don't, they realize that storing truth in DOM, you know, your DOM as data, I'm sure Lispers would like that. But, uh, <laughs> storing uh, code as that. So, so storing your DOM as data rapidly gets to a point where people realize it's not acceptable. And when, when you realize that, you basically immediately start moving towards some kind of invented system. So I've been advocating, like way before I worked on Ember, basically decouple your low-level events like clicks and drags and things like that from high-level events like I have completed this task. Um, and Backbone is basically a, a model that says, okay, there are some common patterns here. You're basically dealing with that a lot. When you set a property, you should receive an event if you want one. Um, um, the problem with that, though, is so that that's useful. That is a step up and takes your stops you from storing a bunch of stuff in the DOM and gives you a good pattern. I, I have but, to say, having been using Backbone for a little while, that you know, go like you just said. I mean, going from the model of you know, you know some of it's in the DOM. I might have a few objects that I've got in memory in the browser somewhere to something like Backbone, where it manages a lot of the data, it manages a lot of the events. I mean, it really is a breath of fresh air. And I'm not saying that it's the best solution, but I mean, it is a step up from... from yeah, so, so I totally agree. I think, I think basically Backbone goes from VVV, like it's a VVV, uh, your jQuery app is a VVV pattern to, um, I think the like Backbone is basically an MC or an MV framework, right? There isn't really controller per se in Backbone, but it decouples your model and your view. And that's right. like a, actually a pretty big deal. Um, I think people, so if you look at the Backbone site, they tell you that it's not an MVC. So I think, I think MVC is like sufficiently hot that the fact that people want things to be MVCs actually defeats the fact that Jeremy doesn't want to call Backbone an MVC. But um, 
So anyway, so Backbone is basically giving you places to put things, decouple model from, from view, and like create a general pattern. Like whenever you change an object, if you want to know about it, you can bind an observer to that and then you can do things. Right. And basically the, the data binding philosophy is, okay, so now that you have done that, it turns out a lot of the time you're using that to shuttle data from place to place. Um, so there's basically, so there's two critiques of Backbone that something like Ember, but also Knockout or other frameworks um, have have a backbone. So number one, like I said, uh, a lot of the things that you're actually doing with events are actually, are basically just saying this thing should be the same as this thing. When you change this thing, reflect that same thing here. Um, and that's especially true about arrays of things, right? So if you have a collection of things, a lot of, like a large number of the time, what you want to do is say, if you add something to this array, I just want the thing that represents the array in the DOM to receive a new rendered copy of the same thing, right? So mm -hmm. whenever, if I add 10 items, I want 10 new things. And in Backbone, those common patterns, which just every app has them, Backbone basically says, okay, here you can, here's the code, copy and paste. And um, the second critique of Backbone is that because Backbone is so highly, uh, so heavily related, so heavily requires that you write your own um, event handling, it actually kind of limits you to a couple of layers. Uh, so because Backbone basically says you need to write your own event listeners and then decide what to do with them, it actually discourages you from breaking your app up into more than like two layers. So um, backbone, you obviously could create more layers that handle more levels of abstraction, but it's not comfortable because you have to make sure you don't make mistakes in how you're, if you have intermediate things that are not the model or the view, you have to make sure that you're listening for events in the right direction and passing them along in other directions, and that gets complicated. So um, data binding basically says, okay, so there are gonna be things that basically sit in the middle. So in Ember, those are usually controllers. Uh, there are gonna be things that sit in the middle, but we're not gonna actually make you say, listen to this and then pass it on to that. We're, we're basically gonna use data binding to glue it all together. So data binding essentially, it makes it a lot easier to break things up into um, conceptually separate objects that have smaller responsibilities because it's, it's, you, you don't have to worry about making the mistake of, okay, now, now I accidentally observed this, but I forgot to do, you know, pass it along and then things go haywire. And obviously good developers don't make those mistakes, but um, as a first, I think I'm a, I write good code and if I have to write the same code over and over again, occasionally I will make mistakes and that's annoying. So, so, so that's sort of. So uh, how does, because I, I kind of get then that there's some uh, data binding layer that you have in Ember.js that, that manages all of the different things that are going on. How, how exactly does it do that then? Um, okay, so basically the first thing that Ember does is it says, we're gonna need some kind of object model that is data binding aware. So um, in Backbone, basically the core concept is events. So you mix in your evented module into your object and then events work. Um, in Ember, there's an object model that is uh, binding aware. And so the, the first thing is, like, and you can use this in Node if you want or, or whatever, you don't need a DOM. The first thing is you could say, this property of this object is bound to this property of the other object. And whenever you set a property on object A, um, it, basically tell, it basically registers a, like it, set, it tells the binding object which exists, it says, hey, uh, later on, when you get a chance, go reflect this change to the other object. Right. And, and then basically the way it works internally is that every time the user clicks on something or types something or something like that, the browser hands off to JavaScript, like please handle this event. And what we do is we basically handle all events. And as soon as we start receiving an event, we basically create a new, essentially a new transaction. 
And then we start running your handlers. You've registered some handlers with us. We call your handlers. Um, and then if you basically make some changes during those handlers, we remember like, oh, you made some changes. We need to propagate that later. And then as soon as all of your code is done, so you've all your handler code is finished running, then we say, okay, we, there's a bunch of things we need to do. And we go and we propagate those changes. And the reason we do it like this instead of doing it immediately is that often there's a lot of intermediate states. So you're setting properties, but um, imagine that you have some calculation that is based on three properties, right? If, if, the, if it was just evented like it is in backbone, every single time you change any one of those three properties, whatever you have to do on the flip side, it has to be done immediately because there's no notion of deferring it. But if you, have, if you defer it, you can change all three of those properties and you don't make any changes immediately. But later on, it's like, oh, that computation that you want to do, even though it depends on three properties, we only have to do it one time. Right. Um, and this is, this is especially important with large arrays of things where you have aggregates. So if you have, tell me how many things are in this array, right? And you add 50 items or you delete 50 items. Obviously, you do not want to recalculate that 50 times and update the DOM. So basically, the way bindings work is whenever you set something, we... Um, what we do is it's called invalidating the property. So we invalidate any, anybody who cares about you. And then later on, once all of your code is done running, before we hand control back to the browser for basically to continue on the event loop, we say, okay, let's go do all those things. And, and that may obviously trigger more things, but we do it in waves instead of like instantaneously as you do things, as you set properties. Okay, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm curious if there are any other frameworks out that you guys have heard of that do the same sort of thing. I mean, I've heard of Backbone. I've heard of Spine. Um, I, I just want to throw some options out there so people know what's there. Um, I am going to have to go try out Ember now. but uh... Yeah, so Knockout is quite similar. Uh, so I, basically the frameworks that are... So Backbone and Spine are similar to each other in that they're trying to be relatively minimal and aren't really trying to add a lot of features above the basic event layer. Um, Knockout, Angular... There's another one that I, Batman JS are all trying to do bindings, but uh, I shouldn't say but they're trying to do bindings. They have decent binding layers. Ember's binding layer is definitely like I would say the most sophisticated of all of them. I think probably in general, like if that they would not argue against that, they would just probably say it is unnecessary or something. Um, but right. yeah, I think if you're looking for, I am a jQuery developer. I would like to have a little structure. Then like Backbone, Spine are good options. If you're looking for data bindings, then um, like I said, a lot of people, a lot of people use Ember. A lot of people use Knockout, Angular, Batman. Um, Batman is a CoffeeScript only framework, which basically means you need to read CoffeeScript in order to read the source of it, which is fine for a lot of people. I personally would never write a framework in CoffeeScript, but even though I use it for work often. So, so then uh, moving on to the back end, uh, we've talked about Ruby on Rails, um, and you mentioned that it gives you a lot of security and things like that. Um, what do you need to be doing to make it consistent in the way that you want it to uh, to get that uh, that API to where you need it to be? Do you just um, use so the built-in uh, JSON stuff that comes in the, the generators? or Definitely not. Um, so I, I should just reiterate. I'm actually interested in, in other thoughts on this question, but I'll reiterate. I should clarify what exactly I mean. So um, when you make JSON, obviously if all you're doing is rendering like an object with five properties, it's obvious what you should do, right? Um, right. But, there's, but there's questions of like how you deal with association. So for instance, let's say you have a post which has many comments, which has many tags. Uh, it is, it's not ideal to, to nest the tags inside the comments inside the post because if you do that, there may be the same tag like 50 times and now you have 50 different copies of it. Um, and further, now you have basically, as you are extracting information, you have to dig into the JSON object 
pull out the things that you need and then assign them. Like if you're if you're using something like Ember, you basically your JavaScript is basically like I have a model. It is a post model. I have a comment model. I have a tag model. And you would like some code to automatically set all that up. You don't want to have to be responsible for manually going through the JSON and saying like, oh, here's my comments. Let me go insert that into all this stuff, right? So. Um, what I mean when I say consistent is that the rule is you only it's it's only nested one level deep. Um, associations are always arrays or single IDs, and then the associations are provided alongside at the top level um, indexed by ID. So that way, if you have uh, 50 comments which each have an author and many of the same author, they're pointing at the same author object at the top level. And obviously, that's not always necessary, but I personally believe strongly in consistency. So um, even if it would, it's only necessary half the time. The fact that half the time you would have to write the code to do it means that you may as well just do it all the time. So, so that's so. So uh, one thing that I want to clarify here then is what you're saying is on the front end, it makes more sense to have one um, master or authoritative copy of the data for a particular object. I think that that's very important. Once you get into data binding, it's extremely important because if let's say I have 50 tags and I have a little tag editing interface and I go and I edit one of the tags, obviously you would like all the t all the locations where that tag is located to be updated, right? right? Yeah. We actually got into that problem recently, one of our apps. So, so basically, like Ember Data, which is not part of Ember, but is like, I think most people use it when they have more than a little bit of data to work with. Um, we basically, one of the main reasons that exists is as an identity map. So when you give us a tag, it's inserted into the store once, and if you ever try to get that same tag again, you get the same Ember object back out of it. Right. And that way, if you edit one copy of it, all the other places where it is in DOM will always have the right thing. Well, it's, um, and the, sorry. No, no, it's okay. I just, it, I'm, I'm having these news flashes, I guess, in my head, where it occurs to me, you know, yeah. So if, if you need, if you need that object, you just, it just pulls it out of its collection of objects, and you know, if it needs to, then it can go and check and see if something's changed, you know, on the server side if it has to, and then it can update everything right. the way you were talking about before. Exactly. So you, exactly. you can maintain consistency that way and, and still have it from the server. Right. You sorry. can, yeah, you can you can uh, have it update more quickly because it's already there in memory. Yeah, and updating from the server is also, like having one canonical copy on the client is important. Otherwise, you would have to go like, oh, news, news flash, the server has decided to change the tag name of this. Now I need to go figure out all the places where I happen to have that tag, right? So basically, the, if you have, if the associations in the JSON are always pointing at IDs, and then the, you basically get the canonical copy alongside, you, you don't have this problem, mm -hmm. right? You only have one canonical copy of it. Right. Um, obviously, it would be crazy if, you, like, it is of course possible and really bad if you have nested copies and you have different things in all the nested copies. That probably would not happen, though, right? So the problem isn't that you might get different copies in the JSON. It's just which one of them is the canonical one, and then right. where, how do you store that? And how do you make sure that they're all pointing at the right one? So basically, just not not getting into that problem in the first place, I think, is correct. Um, okay. And no, obviously, render JSON in Rails does not solve that problem. Right, and render JSON in Rails does by default everything is embedded, and it doesn't really, and it basically asks you to do all the work by building up a hash yourself and then passing it to render JSON. Yeah, I've, so, got, I've gotten pretty familiar with that hash. <laughs> so, so I, the way you're, the way you're talking about it, it almost sounds like like a relational database type of thing where you, I mean, it's like a table that has IDs basically, right? Uh, yes. So it's it's basically it's it's conceptually relational. It is not as heavyweight as a like whole relational database. It's, doesn't mean you have queries or joins or anything like that. Yeah, what yeah. That? So you're always point. It's it's more like it's more like just a way in JSON to represent object identity, mm -hmm. right? So so if in in a, in an, if you have an in memory structure, you can say all these things point at the same object, 
but if you're in JSON, you can't say that. And so the way you say that is by ha essentially serializing object space into a JSON structure and then using IDs to point at it. So they're, yeah, like you said, they're, they're poor man's pointers, kind of. Correct. Um, so I would say it's definitely relational, but I would say it's more about preserving identity than it is about the relational nature of it. All right. So I have, a, I have another question about the kind of the consistency end of things. Um, and, and this is something, you know, I'm trying to steer clear of Rails jargon because, I mean, people use all kinds of stuff to build their back ends. Um, like Node.js. Yeah, yep. um, among other <laughs> things, yes. So um, I guess my question is, sometimes, let's say I'm just loading up like my main page on my blog, and all I really have there is like the title, the author, and a short description. So I don't really even need to care about the comments or the tags or the categories or anything else related to those posts. All I need is the basic data and an author object that I can re refer to. So in, the, in that case, do you pass an object that has references to the comments and tags and categories? Or do you not worry about that until you're actually um, updating it to a state where you need that information? So there, uh, there's basically two ways to do that. Um, the, easy, the easy way that would retain consistency is that you would include the references, but you would not include the actual the thing that is being referred to. So you would have a tags thing, and it would have a list of IDs, but you would lazily get those IDs later. Right. But, and, but per, per, a, a more advanced thing would be to have, like, in your system, to have a notion of partial updates so that you could load in a few fields, and then later on, when you want to load more things, load the more things. The reason why I'm saying it's more, more complicated is because, like I said before, you still definitely want to have a sense of identity, right? So if you're updating, if you're adding tags to a blog post that already you you want to update you want to add the tags to the original thing that is representing the blog post. You don't right. want to be like creating a whole new one. Right. And so basically, that means that your system needs to have a notion of being able to be updated with a few fields. And but that that's not very hard. And, and I should say that the the first approach of just like including references to things that you don't have access to yet is fine for most cases. And it, it makes you not have to worry too much about essentially loading in partial data. Right. Which approach does Ember.js take? I'm asking because you're here. Um, so Ember data right, by default takes the approach of expecting that you have at least the references. Uh -huh. um, we've run into a few cases where partial updates would be a good idea and it would not. So, so I actually Ember.js has two layers. It has the like, how does the store work? And the store doesn't really care. The store is basically like, give me a hash for this ID. And later on, if you go get the same ID again, we'll give you an object backed by the same hash, or the same object backed by the same hash. Um, so you could obviously go and update that hash, and by definition, it would all work. Um, but the, actually, there's another layer, which is the adapter, which is the code that actually talks to your server. And we have a default one, a default REST one, which is for dealing with the type style that I'm talking about now. And that, style, that expects that you give it the data lazily, and um, that you give it at least the data such that lazy updating could be possible. So if you have a case where you have like a million tags, and you don't want to load that until you actually need it, then like we're probably going to add something like this, but it, we haven't hit the issue yet. All right, cool. That that I should I, I should say a million tags and so such that loading even the IDs would be expensive. Huh. Yeah, it it's just it's fascinating to me. Um, again, how many approaches there are, but uh, you know, just uh, just thinking about the the ways that we can solve these problems and and make it consistent. And uh, you know, just talking about it, it seems relatively simple. Um, so as you update things, is, is there some way that you should be circling back to your API server and, and getting the data or 
you know, do you just perhaps get it when you update something or, or things like that? Or does it so matter? Part of, the, uh, part of the consistency question is also like what happens when you make an update. Um, and so basically the way we think about it in general is when you make an update, either the server can give you back nothing, which basically means mark this thing is updated. It is no longer dirty or waiting to be saved. But it, but all the properties are the same, and then you could optionally also return like a hash back which says actually, like for instance, a common thing would be updated at would change, mm-hmm. right? Because now you have actually updated it. Here's a hash. Go update your the backing hash. And again, in our case, if you update the backing hash, the object that points to that hash does the right thing. Um, so yeah, that's. I, I would definitely, I definitely think like the way that you actually go about updating things, like we support bulk updates, like updating ten objects at a time. And then the rule is you have to return back the hashes in the same order that they were submitted, right? So I think a lot of this, I think Rails did a good job early on of saying like, a lot of things are common. We should not make you like constantly rethink things. There's a resources helper and that helper generates like 10 URLs for you. And I think part of where we, I gave this talk at RailsConf last year. I think part of where we need to go as a both front end and back end community is just decide what consistently, what consistency looks like for more than just like rest, which is a very vague thing. And it basically means there is a resource representation. Go for it, right? Mm-hmm. Like what is the resource representation? What, what should servers be sending back? How should servers represent associations? Should servers include roots? Should they not include roots? Um, what should happen when you save things? Uh, how do you do bulk? So rest is like actually pretty, I'm probably going to get flamed. Rest is pretty bad at bulk in that it does not specify it at all and it's not obvious how you do it. But, um, but like saving 10 things at once seems like a good idea. So how does that work? Yeah, and basically figuring all that out. We're basically just ad hoc picking a picking an answer and then writing an adapter that supports that. But I think a bigger discussion about that would be a good idea, probably. Yep. So uh, the other question that I have is, um, when you're updating, do you generally send just the diff? In other words, if if the the key on the object isn't there, then it's not updated. Or if the key's not there on the object, is it deleted? Uh, so the gen- we basically follow the normal Rails convention here, which is put requests, which are updates, should include everything. So there's like a proposal for a patch request, which is has the ability to have a diff, but that's definitely that's still an ongoing discussion. Not in Ember, like in HTTP. Is a right. patch proposal. So, so at this point, you send um, back all of the attributes, so, right, regardless of whether they've changed. Uh, yes, correct. So we we know which attributes changed, but making the server deal with that is actually it, it seems better. It basically seems better for us to to take the hash that is the backing hash and say here is the new backing hash, which right. is basically the semantics of put in HTTP. Right. Uh, so, I, I think it would probably be worth revisiting if it turned out that there were applications where that was extremely slow. That makes sense. So uh, one other question I have for you is that uh, we, we had a long discussion on Ruby Rogues with um, Stephen Klabnik, and he, he went off on how Rails REST is not REST REST. Um, yeah. Uh, wh- where, where do you sit with that? Uh, I now have to make a thing that's probably going to live with me forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer, this is Yehuda's opinion and only Yehuda's opinion. So if you don't I, follow I, it, you are stupid. I think that's true, what he said, but largely irrelevant. Right. Um, so I, uh, to specifically what I mean is that I think that consistency in this stuff is far more important than uh, – I, essentially, I'm not, I'm not an HTTP originalist. I'm not the Scalia of HTTP. I don't want to go figure out what the REST paper originally meant about something and then try to extract it. I think fi- So for instance, bash updates is really a thing that HTTP doesn't describe how to do at all. What URL should you post to or put to or patch to? What exactly does that mean? Obviously, like posting to a collection would seem to imply creating a new item under the, not, the spec says it means creating anything under the collection. Putting to a collection would seem to imply replacing the collection. 
you're not doing either of those two things. So where do you where do you send the request to in the first place? Like these are actually these are questions that exist in the real world that need to be solved. And I think I think it's okay to try to like say what's the best restful paradigm, but there's bigger problems which are actually implementing some feature that doesn't have a good semantic semantic explanation in, in REST. Right. So I I think people so when people say it doesn't have it doesn't do the right thing, they don't like the fact that post is used. They don't like the fact that a lot of people want post and put to both work. Um, there, there's a there's a short list of things that are like here is why you're violating rest. Again, I think that the win of Rails saying here is the list, here is what these things mean, actually is more important than the few cases where Rails may have gotten it wrong. So, can we define real quick what do we mean by rest? Like, what is the general idea we're talking about? To me, that means that I have slash object, which uh, so so let's say we've got a, a contact list like a contacts.google.com or something. The rest API for for that would be like slash contacts would give you a list of all of the keys with minimal metadata about the contacts and then slash contacts slash ID would give you back all of the data about that object, right? Yeah, so if you look at, I think when people who are very pedantic, so what you just said seems good, um, I'm cool with that. When people are very pedantic talk about REST, they usually mean that the HDB spec and the original dissertation had some semantics around things and you should follow them. So for instance, a post request is a request that uh, inserts a, rec a an entity nested underneath the entity that you are submitting the post request to. That's what the HTTP spec says. Um, a put request says, take whatever is at the location that I am putting to and replace it with the body of the request that I'm making. So there are semantics around this stuff and basically... Well, that seems like crud. I mean, you've got create is post, update is put, destroy is delete, get is read. So people don't like, I think people don't like the prominence of the concept of collections. So I, I honestly can't speak for other people. I, I've occasionally run into people who are like very angry about Rails's REST implementation and I've, I'm, I'm happy pedant, uh, pedantic people exist in the world, but I have work to do. <laughs> I should be clear, I am not bashing people, I've had good conversations with people, and I'm not, I, I don't think that they're doing anything wrong per se, I just, it's hard for me to make myself care that maybe Rails got some verb wrong, like, at this point there's a big list, basically there's Rails style rest, right, which basically uh -huh. whatever Rails decided around Rails 1-2, and we could change. We could have Rails style REST 2.0, but that would mean breaking a lot of apps. And so the question is: Is the case that you are saying we are doing the wrong thing is that more important? Is is making it correct more important than the cost of breaking apps? Right. right. And like, I, it's just hard for me to care about this. There are there are a few cases where it's like clearly wrong, and it's hard for me to make myself say yes. Break. We should break everyone's app. Because so, fixing that is very important. Can you give an example of where something would need to change? Because I mean, like as I understand, I've read through the HTTP spec, and you know, I'm not like a, a, a hardcore HTTPist, but put and post they kind of blur the lines. The paragraphs on those two aren't you know extremely clear, so I can kind of see where somebody might think it's okay to do one versus the other. I, personally, I don't care. Um, I think that update is kind of silly anyway. You could just have delete the old and create a new or something. Yeah, that kind of sucks though. But, but, um, <clears throat> but uh, what, what's a case where um, an API would, would break rest? Or you, so, know, you could use a Rails example. So I think if you look at, so again, I, I think there are people who will have more compelling arguments than I will personally remember at this point. But um, one example would be 
Um, a put request is basically like take whatever the contents of this body is and replace what there is there now. And the Rails semantics are update the existing resource at that location with by updating just the fields that are in the in the body. And that's so that's wrong. But basically, basically people say that put in Rails should really be patched because yeah. you're basically updating. And that, that's oh, because it's not a full replacement. Is that you don't always, like you might, but you don't always fully replace it. And uh. certainly, certainly there may be there often are internal properties that are not exposed to rest. So you are you may be making a put request that contains does not contain fields that you I guess technically should just wipe out. Okay, well I I think that some of those arguments might be a little outdated considering that we are now in the age of HTML5 and the HTTP spec was created long long ago. When I mean, although I, you got to admit they they had some ideas right. There's the coffee pot protocol, you know. Yes. Good luck. Yeah. But but I mean they they had the idea that there would be other devices online on the internet um, even if it was just jokingly um, than just you know browsers alone. Um, but for the most part, I, I would think those people that designed it wouldn't have quite imagined the kind of HTML five interactive full on applications that are built around modern browsers. So I so I think I think it. That's not. I, I think they would. They actually did a remarkably good job, and I think they're. And I think honestly, a lot of the cases where people complain are toss-ups, right? Like maybe Rails did it wrong, and maybe the HTTP spec is smart. Like it. Anyway, proceed. So uh, one other thing that I wanted to bring up, and that is that um, I don't know uh, how many of the modern browsers support put and delete. All of them. Uh, no, they. So put and delete is supported in all AJAX requests. And no, never on forms. And I actually I reopened the thread a while, like a month or so ago, to like say, hey, can we have this back? And it turns the reason why it's not in forms actually turns out to be pretty complicated. So uh, in when Rails supports put and delete, it basically says the semantics of put and delete are the same as post because we're hijacking a post. Right. But but route it inside of Rails into a put request. Right. Right. Um, where if the browser wants to implement put, it like wants to look at the put HTTP spec and actually do the right thing. And that turns out like getting the, the correct answer there, there's like a pretty long thread about this and there's a pretty long open bug ticket about this. I, I personally didn't have the time to actually even fully answer it. They're like, what should we do in these cases, these cases, these cases? It's like hard to know. Right. So, and but plus there's security, potential security vulnerabilities. Really. Isn't, isn't it up to the browser anyway? I mean, like if I, if I put post in a form versus put in a form, I mean, the, the server, um, you know, the server's going to get that data and it's going to decide what to do with it. Why, why would the browser be as concerned? Just curious here. So it's like what happens if the server returns a 201? What happens if the server returns a 204? What happens if the server returns a 404? Then you do the same thing with all of them. You, yeah, you know. but so the difference is that, so right now there is no spec for post, but everyone does the same thing because they basically copied IE, right? Right. But, but if we basically say it's up to the user agent with put, the actual semantics will be different. People will do different things and that will not be good for the web. So well, one of the nice things about HTTP implementations as is, is they're, they're generally, um, um, Write your implementation to output data strictly, but that it accepts data loosely. So if there's, you know, like a lot of web servers, if you put a slash in instead of a slash r slash n, it still works just fine. Things like that. So I don't know. It just seems like if the server returns a two hundred one instead of a two hundred two or two hundred, then no, so it's fine. Just be smart. Uh, so that's that's true. That is totally true. But 
answer to what browsers should do when they're smart, if it turns out to be different things, is clearly not a good thing. Okay. So basically, we there are exist the argument is that there are a lot of existing servers that have semantics around stuff. Largely, Rails apps have semantics around these things, and they right now return things that have definitions based on post. And just I think people are wary about saying it's basically post because it's not right. Right. So that would be one approach. Would be to say it basically in the browser, the browser do the same thing as post, even if it's wrong. And I think people don't want to. People basically say, look, we don't have to put and delete right now, so we can actually take the time to get it right. We can actually take the time to define semantics that are correct. So, and I, so I was just going to ask, outside of the, the concerns over consistency and semantics, are there, are there any other implications in the fact that uh, the browsers don't you know, give you the option of submitting a form through put or delete? So one, one possible implication could be that right now, so it turns out this turned out to be a wrong assumption, but a lot of people made the assumption, including Rails and Django, et cetera, that there is a whitelist, or sorry, a blacklist of headers that can come from browsers. So if you get it, receive a post request and it has these headers, these are browser headers. And if you receive headers that are any headers other than these, it definitely does not come from a form. And as and because CSRF is only only affected by form submission, a lot of a lot of security um, a lot of servers assume that it would be safe, for instance, if you have a content type of JSON as an example, right? Your content of JSON can't come from a form. Now it turned out, and Rails, we had to do a lot of work to fix this. It turned out that there, this is not a valid assumption because of some weird Flash stuff. So Flash can do weird shit. Not not <laughs> obvious, like not obvious, like you could just do a cross domain. But there's some combination of redirection and other stuff that causes this assumption to turn out to be invalid. But it's actually kind of tricky to to do it. But if the basically if there was if the browser added a new feature and said like, oh, from now on we're going to send. JSON as a thing. You could say form content type equals JSON. Then now a lot of servers that have not been updated to recognize the new reality, which is actually a lot of web frameworks, now it's very easy to make them vulnerable. You don't have to have a weird flash thing or evil.com, right? You just you just have a form that puts or deletes and has a JSON and then you're like pumped. You may be pumped. It may be possible to get to. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, start to wrap this up. We we need to do the picks and then we can call it uh, call it an episode. Um, Jameson, do you want to go first with the picks? Yes. Um, I have I have two picks, I think. The first one is Mike Berbiglia. He's a comedian, um, storyteller guy. He's been on This American Life a couple times and some other radio shows and stuff. But um, he's great. He, he tells amazing stories that also happen to be hilarious. It's, it's not just like, here's my list of jokes that I'm going to tell. So um, I'll, I'll post a link because his name is really hard to spell. But he's great. And then the other one is um, it's a band called Inu. I-N-U. Um, they're like beautiful, poppy, electronic-y, rocky music. It's, it's pretty mellow. Like I, I feel like it wouldn't just like turn anyone off. Um, but it, it, it's great. It's really relaxing and uh, very good. So those are my picks. All right. Uh, AJ, what are your picks? Um, so I'm uh, just way off in left field here. I was listening to a song uh, recently. It's probably like really popular on the radio right now, but um, I don't think it was at the time that I first heard it. Um, just a couple weeks ago by a band called Plug-In Stereo. Um, it's called Oh Darling. And it's just got a pretty interesting, mellow sound to it. Really enjoyed it. Cool. Any others or is that it? Um, that's it. Okay. It's musical week. <laughs> Yehuda, what are you Oh, picks? actually, no, no, I've got another one. I've got okay. another one. Sorry. Uh, Parse.com. 
uh, slash docs slash android underscore guide. Very cool layout on the documentation. Looks very nice. Um, actually trying to build something to replicate it. Cool. Sounds good. Um, Yehuda, what are your picks? Um, okay, so I have two. Um, number one is a book called The Yellow Lighted, Yellow Lighted Bookshop. It is a memoir about uh, from a guy who was a bookseller, basically. He grew up uh, working in a as a stock boy, basically, in a bookstore and then became some high-up thing in some bookstore. And he basically walks through in parallel sort of the history of bookselling in general and his own personal experience. Um, and I thought it was good. I enjoyed it a lot. As a person who likes books and bookstores, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And uh, the second pick is a piece of software called Mau, M-O-U. It's, a, uh, it's really a simple markdown editor. So uh, you type in markdown on the left and the right side is a preview and it lets you uh, pick CSS. So it has like the GitHub style CSS for markdown or other things. Um, and it's under active development. He's been uh, pretty responsive to feedback. And I use it a lot now just because the problem of I have some markdown to type in and I want to see what is actually going to come out the other end as I type plagues me a lot and this solves it. So it's free now, but he, uh, he accepts donations and I think will charge for money for it once he releases it publicly. So. Does, this, does this support the GitHub style markdown where it does like the syntax highlighting and stuff? Um, no, but it will in the next release. So 071, which oh, cool. is his next release, he's going to add... Uh, that's like fencing, code fencing support. Sweet. All right, cool. So I have a whole bunch of picks. <laughs> I'm just excited about a bunch <laughs> of stuff. Um, the first one is Mountain West Ruby Conference. Um, I know it's a Ruby conference, but uh, there's going to be a lot of web discussion there. Um, Yehuda is actually going to be speaking about um, moving toward JavaScript um, front ends and stuff like that. I I don't remember exactly. He could probably tell us better, but uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see where that goes. Um, and uh, I'm also an alternate speaker, so if somebody drops out, I'll probably wind up speaking there as well. Um, another uh, book that I've been reading uh, recently is called Outliers. It's by um, Malcolm Gladwell. And uh, I have a few chapters in, but he, he talks about kind of the, the way that certain people excel in the areas that they're in. And, um, and then he, he finds these reasons why uh, they would... Um, excel in that way. So the first chapter, he brings up uh, hockey players, and it turns out that uh, the the kids with January birthdays, it, it turns out that uh, they they tend to be the the people who are elite in the in the hockey field in Canada. And the reason is is because it's a January first cutoff in in the younger leagues. And uh, the funny thing about it is that they're the bigger kids in the, on those teams, and so they tend to get um, more coaching. They, they go to more of the away games, um, you know, because they're on the travel teams, and the younger kids are smaller, so they don't do as well. They're not as well coordinated, so they don't. And it's just really fascinating. And then the second chapter was the 10,000-hour rule, which you may or may not have heard of. And uh, it actually goes into how people like uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and, um, oh, I forgot the other guy's name. Um, his, he was the son... Uh, one of the Sun founders, Bill something. Anyway, um, Bill Joy. And so, you know, he talks about them and how they kind of had these unique circumstances that allowed them to spend a ton of time in their younger uh, younger adult years um, learning to program and spending time programming. And, and so they got in their 10,000 hours that made them world class 
people in their field and that's what got them to where they could succeed in the ways that they did um and then i my last two picks uh, i'm sorry this is like pick heaven for me but um this it, it's the setup i get a lot of people asking me what setup i use for my um programming both in ruby and javascript and uh, what i use is i use mac vim and uh um it's just a vim variant that you know opens up in its own window and stuff so you don't have to use it from the command line and then i use um, a setup that Yehuda contributed to called Janus. And uh, it's really easy to get set up. And then you have all your syntax highlighting. You can do fuzzy searches for files and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, just a bunch of Vim plugins that they've pulled together and really make it work really well. So um, anyway, those are my picks. And uh, with that, we'll go Janus ahead. Janus is great. It, it really is. I, I used it when I was first starting out. I don't anymore. But it's, it's really good if you want to get a really good setup quickly. Yeah. So I'm still using training so. wheels, Jameson. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway. It's not just training wheels. Yeah. So anyway, um, we are still in iTunes. So um, if you are listening to the podcast and you're enjoying it, then go into iTunes, look up JavaScript Jabber, and leave us a review. Let us know what you thought. Um, also, if you have any suggestions, we're going to get the um, link up so that you can um, post suggestions, topic ideas for us to talk about on the podcast and help you kind of level up with your um javascript so uh, with that i just want to thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week